yesterday you were saying something about how thought comes a lot of times in, in the narrative, and you had some advice for breaking down the narrative. Could you um, repeat that? <laughs> <laughs> you had some sort of specific. Yeah. You know? I, now yeah, sure. So um, the comment is about um, seeing the narrative in our mind and how to disassemble a narrative into discrete noticings. Okay, so what we tune into is, you know, sometimes we're narrating our life as if we were telling someone what is actually going on or what we're experiencing. Or sometimes people feel like they're rehearsing as if they're going to tell someone. But what that involves is a connecting of one moment's experience to the next, to the next, to the next. As if this moment just kind of morphs into the next one and that kind of morphs into the next one. And this pain in the knee morphs into a memory about a skiing accident which morphs into something else about sports injury and then we start thinking about the NBA basketball team. That we, you know, and it, it just... This is what's going on. So what... Mindfulness would have us do is to take note of each each moment of that narrative. There's feeling the sensation, there's thinking about ski injury, there's remembering basketball teams, there's planning to get tickets, there's something, something, something. So that each moment's experience is a unique and distinctive individual thing. So we could say there's remembering, hearing, planning, imagining, feeling, breathing in, etc. Rather than a story about them all run together into a narrative, we see that it's just conditions come together and there's a memory being known. Next moment, other conditions come together and there's boom, pain being felt. End of story. Next moment comes together, another set of conditions give rise to I like it, I don't like it, being known. End of story. Next moment. So that when we start to dis- see what is going on in this narrative in discrete momentary experiences, it kind of chops up the narrative. But in fact, there really is no morphing from one moment to the next. Nothing morphs. Nothing ever changes. Things arise due to causes and conditions and they end right there. They don't morph into the next moment. So when we start to note or notice individual moments, it will guide our recognition of seeing them as individual moments rather than assuming that there's this flow of narrative. So when you become sort of conscious and you have that flow of narrative, then are you going to look at each thing then? Or no, you just no. at that moment? No, after you wake, if you wake up to the fact that I've been a swim in the narrative. Right. You know, I've been floating along on the narrative, and that's exactly what it is. We float along on a narrative. Whereas if, if mindfulness is able to see discrete moments, we sink into, or we, we, we discreetly 
isolate each moment. That, 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 that. And we can really, we can clearly know this moment as this moment due to its own causes and conditions and it falls away. Next moment, another discrete feeling, sensation, experience, moment due to its own causes and conditions and it falls away. The two aren't connected other than by some cause and effect, possibly. But there's no morphine. Yeah. So what I say is note rather than narrate. If you're narrating, chop up the narration to notings or notice things. And that will help you, that will help guide your practice to see things that way rather than a story just kind of morphing along. So at about lunchtime today, I noticed that, actually I'd been noticing it for a little while, that the level of awareness that I was experiencing was sort of dropping off. And I um, I was okay with that. I thought, well, the thought came up. All awareness, <clears throat> causes and conditions, it's impermanent, it falls off, it comes back, no problem. And then, mm, I'd say maybe an hour or so later, I noticed a series of aversive thoughts arising. And, was, and the mind was puzzled, like, Hmm. Aversive thoughts about this content, and it sort of didn't jive to me. And then the thought came to me this aversion is not about this content, it's about the dropping off of the awareness. And my question is sort of twofold. First, is there any value in going back to see where, what were the causes and conditions for the drop in the mind, in the awareness in the first place? And also, does, I mean, does aversion get displaced sometimes? Placed on content that isn't really the content that's causing the aversion. Okay. Let me see if I can remember what you said. All right. But first of all, you said, you noticed uh, at one point that it seemed like the quality of awareness was falling off. Right. What, what, is, what was that experience? I'm, I'm not sure exactly what you mean. I, I, and I'll say this because what is a moment of partial awareness, how is that different than full awareness? So I noticed that I wasn't as aware of the processes that were happening in the mind. Like, I felt, I, I would reflect, oh, I just, I just went through that whole thing, okay. and I missed it as an, it was an afterthought. 
as opposed to actually seeing it rise. Okay. So the awareness was lagging the object or experience rather than being uh, simultaneous with it. Correct. Oh, okay. So that that's it's good to notice that. Yeah. Because sometimes that's it. The mindfulness or the awareness is a little bit behind uh, the, the experience that's being known. Okay. And then a little after that, you said you recognized some aversion arising in the mind, and when you looked at it, you realized it didn't seem to really be about the content that was in the mind at that time, but it might have been about the aversion towards the dropping off of the sluggishness of, the slowness of, the uh, process of awareness itself. And you're just asking me, is that possible? (laughs) I guess I am. (laughs) (laughs) Evidently. Um, <laughs> but you make you make a good point because you're distinguishing between the content that's going on right now, which is these thoughts, and the process which is going on, which is, in this case, the sluggishness of the awareness, and that the aversion that seems the the irritation or, or the aversion that's entering the mind might not be in relation to the content. And it might be in relation to what's being observed or felt in the process. And that happens. You know, when I use my hands as the three-dimensional thing, there's the object being known, and sometimes the object conditions a reaction. The object is so unpleasant that we feel about it. We feel some aversion towards the object. But sometimes in the very observing of something, like you said, the awareness feels a little slow, maybe not quite as clear as you'd like, or something. Not and, as good. Yeah. <laughs> I just, I'm, just, I'm just narrating how the mind probably framed it, knowing this mind. You know that's wrong. You know that's wrong view, right? Of course I know. Wrong attitude, wrong view. Okay. Okay. All right, all right, okay. But anyway, so that somehow there's a, there's a judgment or a, a, a dissatisfaction with the quality of the awareness. You know, we think we think it's not quite right, or, or it's not clear enough. It's a little slow, or something. So very different than the object. So yeah, we can have we can notice, or you know, the mind can recognize all of that. Now, is there any value in, you said, is there any value in going back there to try to figure out what happened or whatever? I really didn't think so. <laughs> well, <clears throat> let me refine your understanding. Okay. Uh, from two directions. Chinul was a Korean Zen monk from I don't know, the 1100s or something, and his suggestion in Seth's case is to trace back the radiance, tracing back the radiance. That. So what you do is you, when you see, and, and Mahasi Sayadaw says something about the same. He says, if you've wandered off in a train of thought, unknowingly, and when you come out of that train of thought, you realize, here's the chain of sequence, going back to the first moment that you lost awareness. Then Mahasi Sayadaw says, if you see that, not not to go back and try to figure it out and ruminate. Now, what did I did I think about this first or that first? Or not? No, no, not that. But it's just if in the recognition of like, oh, I just came out of a train of thought, and you see it go back to right there 
is where I first lost the awareness, or where awareness first turned off. And if you can take note of that experience, if you can say, okay, right there is where the lights went out, <laughs> right? Then that, that can be helpful. I wouldn't, I wouldn't have this as an agenda, you know, every time that the mind wanders away or anything like that, but sometimes you can notice it. Chanul seemed to take it more as a direct pointing towards the nature of the mind, which is to know with awareness. And so, similarly, finding the place, where did you first lose this radiant mind? Where did you first notice, what can you see was the first moment of lights out? So, could be valuable. I wouldn't make it a big agenda, though. And there was someone right there. Yeah. Um, the, the first couple of days, uh, my energy was really good. I was really steady and kind of self-sustaining. And um, there was a, you know, a lot of stuff came up and, you know, it was rising and falling, but the mindfulness at a light level was fairly consistent. In the last couple of days, yesterday and today, I've had the same thing, a dip in mindfulness. And the way I'm getting lost in the mental chatter that's coming up. And what I'm noticing is that um, there's kind of that moment of shifting from mindlessness to mindfulness that's almost um, painful. Like it's a, and it takes energy. And as a result, like yesterday, I was really, really tired by the end of the day. And so do you have any advice? One, like, um, you know, if you're either, you know, a, a teacher of mine said you're either here or you're not, or you're choosing to go. And that sort of choosing to be mindful seems to, that shift from mindlessness to mindfulness seems to take energy. So when you're struggling with a lot of shifting back, mm. how do you maintain energy? So the comment is about the energy of the first couple days compared to the energy of the last couple days. The first couple days seemed to be that there was pretty good energy, noticing the gradual increasing of continuity of mindfulness, and good energy uh, throughout the last couple of days seems to be more, uh, I don't know if you said more mindlessness, or just that you're noticing every time mindlessness comes back to mindfulness. It feels like the form. Feels like I'm being lost in mental chatter, and yes. it's taking longer to come back. Okay, so it seems like you're getting lost in mental chatter and taking longer to notice that. And, and sort of, you know, pull back into a state of awareness. And it's that to stay yeah. mental state of Yeah, I think you know I. Because this is a kind of a new practice of observing the awareness rather than the object, when we do object-oriented practice, we get <coughs> feedback pretty quickly that we're not on task. You know, if you're not on the object, you get, you get feedback really quickly. And I think we can, 
especially in the beginning, it's really helpful actually to use an object to establish some continuity. And then with the awareness, if if you were, you know, no, turning your attention to notice the awareness rather than just the object which you're familiar with, but you're noticing the awareness, that does take some energy to not to just fall back into your old or former way of practicing, but to just keep keep trying this new way. And I don't know if I've mentioned it here, but in some of the groups I've mentioned that when we're trying to recognize the awareness rather than the object, the awareness is very... Uh, much less tangible, seems more diffuse, it's much subtler, and so we can be trying to do something like recognize the awareness and not know whether we're very successful or not. We don't get immediate confirmation. I'm on the object, like we do with the breath or other sensations in the body. Turning to awareness, it's like... uh, is this what they mean by being aware, uh, recognizing awareness? I, I don't know. So it can feel uh, it's a little less affirming that you're doing well in some ways. Uh, I, that, this is my experience. And it sounds like it could have been your experience where you just, you just keep trying this awareness thing or recognizing awareness and you don't get the kind of immediate confirmation that doing well so that can be tiring. The other thing about turning to awareness rather than a chosen object is often when we turn to awareness we're fully aware of all of our thinking. <laughs> you know, we're not trying to stop it. Thoughts aren't the enemy when you're attending to awareness. You can you can be thinking and just noticing the quality of mind that the thinking is expressing and you can be noticing the quality of the awareness and how you're being aware towards that content of thoughts. So, whereas in object-oriented practice, when you're on the object, there's no thoughts. You're on the object. But in awareness practice, or turning attention to awareness, it seems like, oh, you're aware of thoughts, you're aware of how the, the, the emotional content of the thoughts, and even how you're being aware of those thoughts. So, it might initially seem like, I'm just thinking. And you might just be thinking. <laughs> but in time, you'll recognize, you'll, you'll begin to be more confident in recognizing, uh, there's aware, there, I'm recognizing the awareness, there's recognition of the awareness and this stream of thought. We're not trying to... It seems almost like in object-oriented practice, it's thoughts are the enemy. If you're thinking, if you know you're thinking you're definitely not on task. Whereas in awareness practice, it isn't like that at all. So, I'm just offering kind of a squirrely way out of trying to answer your question. (laughs) Not quite, but, you know, I'm just offering some alternatives for you to pick from what might be... (laughs) I have a question about... Okay, so it's all meditation from beginning of the day to the end of the day. And when we have this open-ended choice, um, how do you choose? <laughs> I mean, 
is it better to sit? Is it better to walk? Is it better to, you know, and having issues trying to figure out what's the most effective thing to do. Yeah. I know in real life, I don't have this much choice. I mean, <laughs> but so there's luxury and I want to make the most of it. And so I'm like, oh, it's better to sit longer. But why? <laughs> you know, I don't really have an answer. So the question is about the open-ended or the self-scheduled periods of time. How do you decide which is better? Maybe not. <laughs> you mean I don't have to sit at all? <laughs> I mean... Well, what I want to point to is there's no better. There's no better, yeah. There, there's, there, is, there is no object better than any other object to be aware of. And you can be walking down the driveway and noticing seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, whatever you want, and being aware of that and recognizing awareness. Or you can be sitting in the hall, aware of the most subtle, exquisite, subtle sensation somewhere in the body or the quiet stillness of the mind. It really doesn't matter. I mean, we like, and what you may be acknowledging is, I prefer quiet, still, subtle clarity rather than busy, multi-sense door overstimulation. Yes? So, if, if so, understand that it's the awareness that we're, we're looking at. And so, there really is no preference. But, that doesn't mean that you just kind of float around in this self-scheduled period, just kind of, you know, blowing in the wind. Because we do make decisions. You do make decisions when you're sitting. You do make a decision to get up and to walk. Why? And you're walking and you decide to go here instead of there. Why? You might take a swing by the tea table and have a cup of tea first before you get to the walking. What are the conditions giving rise to that decision? Do you notice what's going on in the mind that says... I better go this way instead of that way. Or why do you only walk halfway down the driveway instead of all the way down the driveway? No, these, I mean that doesn't that doesn't happen kind of without your full participation. So all we want to do is be aware of how we're participating in the process of decisions and what are the conditions that give rise to doing it this way or that way. One of the things, and I'm going to use your example as a teaching moment, you know, that we all do. One of the considerations is we have this assumption that maybe maybe sitting is better than walking, and so there, that's that's a that's a belief that can impact or condition the decisions you make of what to do during the self-scheduled period. Just to know that. You don't have to uh, kind of agree with it or disagree with it, but there might be that assumption in there or belief in there. And then you might want to review, you know, the right views that you have heard or understand and say, no, there can't be, there can't be, there isn't any, any greater value in this experience over that experience. What we're cultivating is awareness, discovery, present moment, whatever it is. Um, this is 
in regards to the teaching last night on anatta. Um, so there's there's no self, and there's the mind, which is not my mind. So how many minds are there? Is there like one massive interconnected mind, or is there like but how does how does that work? <laughs> The question is about the teaching on not-self uh, from last night and uh, if there's not, if this is not-self uh, and yet there is this mind and there is this mental activity, uh, is it just one great big mind that we're all kind of dipping into at some times and how does that work and what, what's the mind anyway? Hmm. It's a, it is a kind of a difficult concept to kind of wrap our mind around is how can there be this very personal experience of this mind and this body or a mind and this body or a mind and a body or something. You know, because I don't feel, I, I, I don't know what's going on in your mind, but I know what's going on in my mind, and you don't feel my body, and I, I sometimes feel mine, and sometimes don't, but, you know, so what, how is this all happening? Someone was in a group today and said that, uh, you know, they were in the group, and what others were saying in the group was going into their mind. They were They were open and just kind of receiving the energy, emotional content of what was being said, and it was like mainlining it right into our own mind. And we've all had that kind of contact experience, whether it's sadness or grief or anger or fear or whatever. And so there's a very, I guess neuroscientists call it, you know, something, something like uh, you know, vibratory connection. You set up a vibration here and anything nearby is going to pick up on the same vibration. So, is that how the mind works? Actually, the way... the way it's kind of referred to... I would say that it is referred to in Orthodox, Theravada, Abhidhamma, understanding of the mind is every moment's experience is a new mind. That's a mind. Conditions come together giving rise to this knowing of something. That's a mind. Gone. Over. Another mind arises next moment. New set of conditions being known. That's a mind. Gone. So mind is more a statement of activity of a momentary set of conditions rather than a noun. Like, there's this mind sitting in the head or in the heart or maybe in the body or maybe right close to the body. It's hard to know where it is. So, to think of it as a moment of mind. There's a moment of mind being known. It's over. It's gone. Next moment of mind. New mind. Because each mind is different. Each moment, we'll call it, each moment of that mind is different. Now there is a recurring, there are recurring patterns, you know, this, this mind that's located in this body 
seems to kind of hang out in this area, you know, at, at different times. You know, has more of this kind of uh, cognitive process, more of these kind of emotions, more of this kind of practice. And then someone else's mind, to put it in a possessive, has different content. But still, each one, each moment of each mind is the same. You know, it's just it's just a moment being known, a moment being known, a moment being known. So I think, rather than trying to metaphysically decide, oh, there's one mind, there's several minds, each moment's a mind, I think the best for us in a experiential, practical sense is to notice moment to moment the experience of the mind. I, I was aware of planning mine uh, earlier today and was, I was uh, anticipating uh, when I was speaking again uh, when I get home. Uh, and and and, and read it, and speaking of last night, Nana, uh, and also I think in, in the book, uh, how to not have the self in statements you make when, in, in conversations, because what happens is you know when the com- when when they come when when somebody uh, doesn't like what you said, you take it very personal. Um, so, do you have any advice about? Uh, approaching conversation without the anatta. So the question is how to represent our understanding of the not-self characteristic when we're in dialogue. Mm-hmm. Impossible. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> I mean, it's not very interesting. If it's <laughs> it, uh, I say impossible because in dialogue, we're in the world of relative, relative reality. Relative reality says, I'm here, you're there, we're having a conversation, and my mind says, do-do-do-do-do-do, and your mind says, hmm, I don't know about that. And so, relatively speaking, yes, I, in my mind, wants things this way, and you, in your mind, wants things that way. And so there can appear to be you know, and there often is conflict, and we take things personally, and when we take things personally, our sense of self gets really solid, mm-hmm. really solid and fixed and inflexible, and it hurts. It gets really painful, it gets defensive, it feels fear, it feels, you know, embarrassment, it gets anger. And then we, then we really know how, what a solid sense of self feels like. Even though, just moments before that, you could have been sitting on the cushion just totally in this unformed sense of self-space where just stuff is just happening in some uh, nearby universe and it's being known. You know, and the bell rings, you stand up, and then you get kind of congealed into this body, in this moment, in this world, in conflict. You know, the best as best you can... Stay, you know, kind of watch the process of being in dialogue, or when you're in dialogue, and keep an eye on your own mind. Really keep checking your own mind in any dialogue, or even as you're listening to this me answering questions here, 
you really don't need to put 100% of your attention on what I'm saying or what the question is. Keep 50%, Utejaniya suggests, keep 50% of your attention monitoring your own mind. Check your own attitude. What's your monologue saying as I'm commenting on this question or as the question is being asked? Your mind might be saying, well, that's a silly question, and I wonder how Steve's going to answer it. I would probably say this, and oh my gosh, he's saying something else. And, and we miss, you may be missing your own mind. Don't give up your own mind for, for these two minds conversing over here. Same in, in, in dialogue. When, and it's hard. I'm, I'm not suggesting that this is a slam dunk easy just because you want to do it. In dialogue is to watch your own mind. So that, yes, you're having a conversation. Yes, the other person just said something where you go, you know, kind of get congealed into a defensive posture of some sort, anger, irritation, whatever. And if you know that, if you've been watching your mind, you'll see it, you'll, you'll recognize it, maybe before you react with some, you know, projectiles speaking. <laughs> you know, I mean, it, but it takes, you know, this is a whole new practice. You know, and often on retreats, just like this, Saida will have, you know, the last couple of days, he'll have periods of time set aside where if you wish to speak with someone, you can go down to, you know, down in this part of the parking lot or, you know, this room or whatever, and if you want, you can have a conversation with someone for five minutes just to start practicing holding some attention or keeping, finding a way to stay aware of your own mind while you're in dialogue. It takes practice, but it essential. Um, I'm curious to know if there are things that uh, you could only learn about yourself through really relationships with other people that you would never have been able to see in a kind of solo meditation practice. So the question is whether there are some aspects or some personal qualities or experiences that can only be discovered in relationship with another rather than in a solo meditation practice. Should we take a vote? <laughs> yes, and yes, and so what? Okay, there's a lot that we could spend our time learning. We can just spend lifetimes, and we have already spent lifetimes learning about different stuff, about ourselves and others and the world outside, if you will. And it can be fascinating, it can be totally seductive, it can be exciting, it can be thrilling, it can be painful. The question you might want to... And I'm going to, I'm going to add a, a phrase to your question. You know, I know you didn't ask it this way, but I'm saying, is there anything we can learn in relationship with others that we can't learn in individual practice that is essential for liberating the mind from suffering? Okay, is that a, is that a fair shift? I don't know. <laughs> because 
we don't live in isolation of others. You know, even the hermit in the cave. You know, and tonight I'm going to talk about a hermit in a cave. You know, still has a community of support. And so there is some, even though it may not be daily verbal contact, there still is some relational communication that supports the practice of one who is awakening. And so, whether it's essential or not, it happens in every instance that there's some kind of connection like that. So I would say this, and from personal experience, and I know you all know this, there's nothing like having a close, intimate relationship to bring out the worst of you, <laughs> as well as the best of you, right? So, that's kind of the, the, the proof is in the pudding, you know. There's something about being in a relationship where, you know, there's just a lot of sharing and a lot of intimacy and you can be unguarded and sometimes, no, every time, we know each other's buttons really. We know this. We know the. We know how to push each other's buttons. You know, it just happens, right? Not only me. I know. So, and there's stuff to learn there. I don't know if that's the only place to learn it. After the question about the uh, free will, the. The thought of um, is when there are times when a defilement is not a defilement. So a, a wise choice taken uh, because of an immediate danger um, could be an action in response to fear. Um, and is that an unwise um, response, fear in that situation? Or where do you go instead of that? Hmm. Uh, this completely safe area as I was doing the bridge, uh, covered bridge trail, you know, up came the image of there must be bears in these woods. <laughs> <laughs> So the question is, you know, can and what is normally called an unwholesome state of mind, like fear, prompt action which is wise? Right? And like, get out of here. <laughs> you know, hey, that's that's wisdom. I would say, yes, it's it's a reasonable fear and yes, it's it conditions this wisdom that says, best we get out of here. I would, I don't know just how that would uh, translate into moment by moment by moment, but the get out of here may actually have been fueled by a moment of wisdom between the fear and the action. So I'm getting... This is getting down to the pixelated stream of consciousness, do 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 do, and the fear may condition the impulse to leave, 
and a moment's reflection on that impulse could be wisdom that actually initiates the movement. Okay, so, yeah, you know, generally speaking, we'd say, yeah, it, it's smart, it's wise to, you know, avoid painful, threatening, dangerous uh, situations. As, I don't know who the poet is, but there's this poet, and I heard, I heard this on NPR initially, and it's a well-known poet, poet poem. She says, uh, your mind is a dangerous neighborhood, don't go there alone. <laughs> yeah. And what that means is there's a lot of there's a lot of terrain of the mind of the heart where if you go there without your awareness, without mindful awareness, you can get you can get mired in, you know, sentimentality and depression and anxiety and fear and all kinds of things just wallowing in areas of the mind without without Wise attention. Well, it's not only your mind, it's the world at large. You can get caught up in all kinds of things that is dangerous for your own peace of mind, to say, let alone your own safety of your body. Yeah. So I think that, you know, even in the quickness of that response to run, to flee, uh, there's a moment of reflection. You know, and it's quick, and, and we may not notice it. Uh, it may be quicker than our mindfulness, but in time, I think we could recognize it. Yeah. Well, I fell into the ditch of looking for particular experiences, and I didn't realize that that was the ditch I was in. I think I was in it the other day when I had a day of grogginess, even, um, and um, went to ultimately a, a, a decision to just be simple. Just, you know, just be simple. And that was the first thing. And so I, I have a question about, I would notice things like a stream of thought in which I clearly constellated, I guess is the word, a sense of self. Yeah. And so one of the things that would happen is I, I noticed that, and then it was like, there was this sense of, well, I should be like seeing some cosmic coming together of this self and dissolving of, you know, that I should be seeing all that. And so in this time of saying simple, trust, blah, 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 I said, hey, you noticed that there was a sense of self. You noticed the feeling of that sense of self in that moment. And sometimes I could see that what it came, what the, what it came from and, to, and said, that's it. That's that's it. Move on. That's enough. Is yeah. that is that right? Yeah. So the the comment was that uh, a day or so ago she got she fell into the ditch looking for specific kinds of experience had a, had an agenda in your practice didn't recognize it and ended up kind of struggling and having you know messy practice and suffering and having hard time. Right? Doubt. Doubt. Oh, get into doubt. Okay, so now that you have kind of pulled yourself out of the ditch and said, simplify, 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 just came back to the basics, what's, what's going on, object being known, okay, it may not be what I was looking for, but it's something, okay. Um, and even in that, even without looking for 
where did this self come from? How did this self get arise? How did how did I get caught in the ditch? That's what you really want to know. Is why did I get get caught there? Well, because you know some idea about practice rose in the mind, and you grabbed onto it. It would be good to see the creation of this self, you know. And so you got a little bit of an agenda with your with your awareness. So that's an attitude of mind. You've got an agenda and a little bit of wrong view. And it's so interesting, it's so fascinating, you can think, well, this has got to be good practice until you find yourself in the ditch. You know, lost in doubt, buried in doubt. Like, this doesn't seem to be working, and am I doing it right? You know, and when, that, when you find yourself in that kind of situation, just recognize, oh, I've had this... I've had this agenda, I've had this project. Practice has become a project. Find the self, or whatever whatever you had as a project. Simplify, you're right. Just let go, just stop. Just stop everything. Sayadaw sometimes says, just stop, just stop. Don't do anything. Just wait. Awareness will find you. But it's good to know what project you took up or what perspective you wanted to see things through or what kind of experience you were expecting or hoping for in practice. Because if there's any kind of expectation like that or hoping for this kind of result in practice, you know it can only lead in two directions. It's either going to lead to disappointment, frustration, doubt, or it's going to lead to success pride, inflation, and off track in that direction. So be careful not to go there. So I had, I like the idea of not that there's no self, but there's no permanent self. And that's talked a lot about these days. That there's a process called selfing, which <coughs> sounds like a mind in creative all all the time, but could you talk to that? Like, uh, I know the idea of no permanent self, of course, feels because yeah. impermanence kind of is in there. So the comment is about no permanent self, but still there is a process, seems to be a process of selfing. While you were asking the question, I had a couple things cross my mind. One was the way that the Buddha talked about not self. He didn't say no self. He said not self. This is not self. This body experience, not self. This mental experience, not self. These thoughts, not self. These feelings, not self. These perceptions, not self. Anything you can experience, not self. He didn't say there's no self. He said it is not self. Okay. But using the word self in this Buddhist way, is very different than using the word self in a Western psychological say, way. And I'm not sure what the difference is, but I know that in Western psychology, you better have a self. You better have a, a nice, solid, confirmed, you know, kind of coherent, uniform, predictable, whatever, sense of self, just to navigate the world. Okay. So, fine. Let's, let's, let's allow that but let's also look at experience moment to moment as it unfolds and as it appears 
and see that it has this characteristic of not being controllable. We can't make it happen. We can't often stop it from happening. It just happens. There is no one able to control it. Ah, that's what in, in, the, in the Dharma language, the Buddhist language, points to the truth of, or the experience of, this being not self. Okay, so, yeah, conditions come together, even in, you know, in our practice, conditions come together, giving rise to a sense of self. Now, I often talk about, you know, when we, um, when we have an experience, experience comes together, it creates, or it seems to condition, a sense of self that has this experience. Now, it might be a very painful experience, so we have this image, or we have this imprint in the mind of myself being very pained. And we may be open to it or not. If we're not, it goes into the memory banks as a kind of a little tension, a little gripping, a little holding to this sense of self, ouch, you know, and we kind of scrunch up our shoulder and we, you know, kind of like that. And it goes into our memory banks and after doing that a hundred thousand times growing up, we now have a permanent sore shoulder. Because we've been holding this, you know, painful sense of self like this. So as we recover memories and we see that experience or we relive that experience and we see that sense of self, we can relax. We can understand, not self, not self, not self, not self. Relax. The pain goes away or the, we let go of the pain, we accept the pain, or we learn how to open to and experience that unpleasantness as not-self. Okay, so in some ways we say we, we decondition all of these, um, or we pixelate all these uh, senses of selves that have conditioned, have kind of emerged to condition this, this big sense of self. Yeah, and it's a changing, fluid process. Different mind, different self, every moment. Maybe. Um, let's see if I can put this into words. Um, what I noticed for the first few days is... Um, more aversive um, defilements um, and cra- the craving desire didn't come in for a few days and then it was like really subtle, very um, you know, pleasant, very seductive, very um, enchanting and so it was sneaky. Until it was what? It felt sneaky and it was underneath uh, 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 and I'm just wondering if you could speak to that Oh, yeah. So the comment is that in the first few days, the defilement du jour was aversion, <laughs> right? Different forms of aversion, and it was only later in the re- later in the retreat, as we go along, a few days that then the the tentacles of desire and craving and seeking and wanting pleasantness, enjoying the pleasantness, kind of snuck in and made itself known. And uh, what would you like me to say about it? <laughs> well, I'm just, just, you know, I was just really curious about it. I'm just, I don't know. I'm just, if you have anything to speak to, maybe it's just 
It's yeah. just It's not just you. No, it's not just you. There's a little bit of a process going on here that, you know, when we, when we come to an intensive period of practice or when we pick up practice for the first time or whatever, and we start looking at things through the eyes of the through the through the lens of the Dharma, we're going to discover some dukkha. I mean, that's that's what practice is to investigate, to discover the first noble truth of dukkha. And so you're going to come across dukkha in the form of pain, insecurity, vulnerability, oppression, whatever. And our conditioned or the mind's conditioned habit of reacting to pain is aversion. So it's quite natural that there's going to be some tendency towards some aversion uh, that we're going to see in practice. But as you practice, of course, you know, you get a handle, and depending on how much you practice, you'll get a handle on both the unpleasantness and the aversion, and maybe it's not as pervasive, not as strong, not as long, not as intense, and there might be some creeping momentum to your mindfulness that results in a little bit of ease in the body, a little bit of quietness in the mind, a little bit of relief from constant pain and dukkha, and you don't notice it, you think, wow, finally, practice good. Okay, now, third day, doing better, doing better, fourth day, really doing good, yeah, fifth day, I'm really attached to this now. <laughs> I like it this way, I don't want it to ever go back to the beginning again. So, it sneaks in. Yeah, I mean, unpleasantness and aversion is really easy to notice. Pleasantness and attachment is really hard to notice. I mean, it's a fact, isn't it? We like pleasantness. We like to be attached. We like craving pleasant experience. And so, we don't want to notice that and have it go away. We want it to stick around so we indulge in it or... Related to that, actually, um, I've been reading a lot about the, we won't get what we want. So related to the craving, right? We won't get what we want? Yeah. There was some some famous Dharma teacher (laughs) said something about, you can't always get what you want. (laughs) (laughs) But that it's rather um, causing causing effect that will make things happen. And I'm just trying to get my head around, and, and I had this similar experience right now, you know, initially it was a lot of aversion, and now it's turned to, okay, I'm realizing that I want a lot, and want things, and that's what's holding back, and, and causing, you know, just being, you know, kind of stuck. Mm-hmm. But the whole concept of cause and effect, and, and, and how it relates to this wanting, is, is I'm not clear in my head, Causes and uh, I don't quite understand the question yet. I heard oh. you talking about causes and conditions, and I heard you talk about cause and effect. Well, that causes and condition result in an effect, right? Yes. And then and it's an exchange of Yeah. Um, causes and conditions come together, giving rise to an effect, an experience. Right, so my, my question is, I guess it said here, everything happens because of cause and effect, yeah. not because you want it to happen. Yeah. So I was just trying to figure out, so what's an example that would show, you know, I might want something, but it's not going to happen until certain causes and conditions are in place? Is that sure, yeah, sure. Happen? Yeah. When you sit down, wouldn't you like to have a good sitting? Nice, pleasant, comfortable, subtle, quiet, still, mm-hmm. continuous and clear. Would anybody not like to have that kind of sitting? <laughs> okay, so, the, I mean, underneath it all, we'd like to have that. 
you know, it, it's it's a it's a desire that's just kind of laying dormant there, you know. And hopefully, I mean, if it gets any if it gets any legs at all, like oh, it's a little bit comfortable, then poof, it's like ooh, okay, I like it. You can want it, and because you want it, or that that doesn't make it happen, does it? But when the conditions are come together, there will be this pleasant experience of the body and the mind. It, we all experienced it. We didn't. We can't make it happen. If we could make it happen, we'd go poof. It's going to happen all the time. We can't, right? So things happen not because you want them to, but because of causes and conditions. So what side I will point to somewhere in the book and maybe right there is rather than craving what you want, look to the causes and conditions that give rise to it and work with those. Yeah. So what is the causes what are the causes and conditions for let's say <coughs> continuity of awareness, clarity, things like that. What are the causes and conditions? Well, right view patient, persevering energy, uh, interest in anything that arises, etc., etc., etc. And if, if, and wise attention. So if you have wise attention, right view, uh, persevering but patient energy, and some confidence, then, you know, it's more likely those, those conditions are going to give rise to some continuity, some clarity, which often comes with a kind of pleasantness, the joy of awareness. Yeah. But if you just say, I want, I want to be calm, I want to be, I want to be quiet, I want the mind to be so peaceful and the body to be, yeah, pleasant, yeah, why not? You can see that's not going to happen. <laughs> right? So, thank you very much for your questions. It's kind of, Interesting to see the changing nature of questions as the retreat goes on. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.